Here's a story. Here's a story. Here's a story. Here's a story. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Here's a Story. This is a podcast about societies and cultures of today and yesterday. This episode is called Dream Time. Enjoy. Before the skyscrapers hugged the clouds and the great asphalt roads snaked their way through painted landscape, before the inventions of the machine gun and camera lens alike shaped society and the great ships of wood and cloth sailed across the unforgiving sea, before civilization wrapped its iron fist around Mother Nature and cell phones and televisions stole our eyes from the stars, one thing has remained. Stories. Cultures across the world watched the earth change and grow, and generation after generation, stories and venerated folklore were uttered from the pursed lips of parents and chieftains, friends and foes, dancers and soldiers. On this episode, we're going to be dwelling into the land of the First Nation. The First Nation people have many names, some including Aborigine, Aboriginal, Indigenous, and the Koori people of Australia. The First Nation people believed in the dream time. The dream time is the aboriginal understanding of the world, of its creation, and its great stories. The dream time is the beginning of knowledge, from which came the laws of existence. The dreaming world was the old time of the ancestor beings. They emerged from the earth at the time of the creation. Time began in the world, the moment these supernatural beings were born out of their own eternity. 
The earth was a flat surface in darkness, a dead, silent world. Unknown forms of life were asleep below the surface of the land. Then the supernatural ancestor beings broke through the crust of the earth from below with incredible force. The sun rose out of the ground. The land received light for the first time. The first story you're going to hear is about the origin of water. Once upon a time, the land had no water, or so all the animals were led to believe, because the only way to get a drink or quench their thirst was to chew gobera, kangaroo grass, or lick the dew from the leaves. One day, the short-nosed bandicoot Gujila saw Bingera, the blue-tongued lizard, drying himself behind a rock. When all of the other animals heard this, they were very angry and said to Bengera, You must have some water hidden away. Where have you hidden it? Bengera would not tell because he wanted the water for himself. The animals called a meeting and chose Gujila, the bandicoot, to follow Bengara wherever he went. But Bengara was very clever and could see Gujila out of the corner of his eye and never revealed where the water was hidden. The animals called another meeting and chose Jigger Jigger, the little willy wagtail, because he was smaller than Gujila and could move a lot faster in case he had to hide when Bengara looked around. But when Jigger Jigger did hide, he could not keep his black and white tail from flicking about. Bengara still had the water hidden. The animals did not know what to do. Bengara was too smart. Then Gula, the rat, the smallest of all the animals, said he could follow Bengara, but all the other animals laughed at him. And Midden, the ring-tailed possum, pushed his way in and told Gula that he was too small and should not be heard. Gula, very hurt, went his own way and crept up very close behind Bengara, the blue-tongued lizard. When Bengara thought someone was following and looked to the left, Gula the rat would jump to the right. And when Bengara looked to the right, Gula would jump to the left. And so it was that the little rat, Gula, followed the blue-tongued lizard to the spring that was hidden under a big flat rock. And when Bengara lifted the rock to let the spring flow, Gula jumped out from hiding and frightened Bengara away. And all the other animals praised Gula for what he had done. The animals were so happy for all the running water, bubbling from the spring, they all jumped in and began to splash water everywhere, and the kingfisher was so glad he swam to and fro, and with his beak made drains and gullies in front of the running water all the way down to the sea, and that is how the small creeks and gullies were made to this very day. Kuriala, the Rainbow Serpent Far off in dream time, 
There were only people. No animals or birds, no trees or bushes, no hills or mountains. The country was flat. Guriala, the great rainbow servant, stirred and set off to look for his own tribe. He traveled across Australia from south to north. He reached Cape York, where he stopped and made a big red mountain called Neuroligan. He listened to the wind and heard only voices speaking strange languages. This is not my country. The people here speak a different tongue. I must look for my own people. Guriala left Neuralogan, and his huge body made a deep gorge where he came down. He traveled north for many days, and his tracks made the creeks and rivers as he journeyed north. Guriala made two more mountains. One of the Naradunga was long, made of granite. The other had sharp peaks and five caves, and was called Nanalina. One day, Guriala heard singing and said, Those are my people. They are holding a big barn. At the meeting place of the two rivers, Guriala found his own people singing and dancing. He watched for a long time. Then he came out and was welcomed by his people. He showed the men how to dress properly and taught them to dance. A big storm was gathering, so all the people built humpies for shelter. Two young men, the Bilbil, or Rainbow Lorikeet brothers, came looking for shelter, but no one had any room. They asked their grandmother, the Star Woman, but she had too many dogs and couldn't help them. The Bilbil brothers went to Guriala, who was snoring in his humpy, but he had no room. The rain got heavier and the boys went back to Guriala and called out that the rain was heavy. Guriala said, all right, come in now. The Bilbil brothers ran into Guriala's mouth and he swallowed them. Then he began to worry about what the people would say when they found the boys missing. He decided to travel north to Bora Bunaru, the only great mountain in the land. The next morning, the people found that the boys were gone and saw the tracks of Guriala and knew that he had swallowed them. You may never see these lakes or mountains, but after the rain, you will see a spirit in the sky, which is the rainbow. This is why he is called Guriala, the rainbow serpent. Mitochondrial DNA indicates that the Australian Aborigines arose 400,000 years ago from two distinct lineages, which is far earlier than any other racial group. It's currently estimated that Aboriginal people arrived in Australia 68,000 years ago. Rock engravings made in South Australia are dated to 45,000 years ago, the earliest dated petroglyphs. The oldest evidence of bread making in the world is at Cuddy Springs 30,000 years ago. The earliest visible evidence of Aboriginal belief connected with the rainbow serpent is 8,000 years ago. That's the longest continuing belief in the world. 4,000 years ago, humans migrated to Australia from India, bringing with them different tool-making techniques, such as microliths, which are small stone tools that formed at the tips of weapons, and the dingo, which most closely resembles Indian dogs, which means the dingo was introduced only 4,000 years ago. This next story is called The Story of the Seven Sisters and the Faithful Lovers. In the dream time, many ages ago, 
The cluster of stars, which we now know as the Pleiades, or the Seven Sisters, were seven beautiful ice maidens. Their parents were a great rugged mountain whose dark head was hidden in the clouds, and an ice-cold stream that flowed from the snow-clad hills. The seven sisters wandered across the land, with their long hair flying behind them like storm clouds before the breeze. Their cheeks were flushed with the kiss of the sun, and in their eyes was hidden the soft, gray light of the dawn. So entrancing was their beauty that all men loved them, but the maiden's affections were as cold as the stream which gave them birth, and they never turned aside in their wanderings to gladden the hearts of men. One day, a man named Warunna, by a cunning device, captured two of the maidens and forced them to live with him, while their five sisters traveled to their home in the sky. When Warunna discovered that the sisters whom he had captured were ice maidens, whose beautiful tresses were like the icicles that drooped from the trees in wintertime, he was disappointed. So he took them to a campfire and endeavored to melt the cold crystals from their beautiful limbs. But as the ice melted, the water quenched the fire, and he succeeded only in dimming their icy brightness. The two sisters were very lonely and sad in their captivity, and longed for their home in the clear blue sky. When the shadow of night was over the land, they could see their five sisters beckoning to them as they twinkled far off. One day, Warunna told them to gather pine bark in the forest. After a short journey, they came to a great pine tree and commenced to strip the bark from it. As they did so, the pine tree, which belonged to the same totem as the maidens, extended itself to the sky. The maidens took advantage of this friendly act and climbed to the home of their sisters, but they never regained their original brightness, and that is the reason why there are five bright stars and two dim ones in the group of the Pleiades. The seven sisters have not forgotten the earth folk. When the snow falls softly, they lose their wonderful tresses to the caress of the breeze to remind us of their journey across our land. When the seven sisters were on earth, of all the men who loved them, the Varai Varai, or two brothers, were the most faithful. When they hunted in the forest or awaited in the tall reeds for the wild ducks, they always brought the choicest morsels of the chase as an offering to the sisters. When the maidens wandered far across the mountains, the Varai Varai followed them, but their love was not favored. When the maidens set out on their long journey to the sky, the Baribari were grieved and said, Long have we loved you and followed in your footsteps, O maidens of the dawn, and when you have left us, we will hunt no more. And they laid aside their weapons and mourned for the maidens until the dark shadow of death fell upon them. When they died, the fairies pitied them and placed them in the sky, where they could hear the sisters singing. Thus were they happily rewarded. On a starry night, you will see them listening to the song of the seven sisters. We call them Orion, Sword, and Belt, but it is a happier thought to remember them as the faithful lovers who have listened to the song of the stars from the birth of time. The bull roarer is a primitive instrument used by the Aborigines at initiation and other ceremonies. It is a thin, oblong section of wood attached to a length of string through a hole at one end. When it is swung rapidly through the air, it produces a peculiar humming sound. It is held in sacred veneration by the Aboriginals and is never seen by the women of the tribe under penalty of death. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
In a rocky place in the mountains, there lived two brothers named Biama. They were both married, and each man's wife had a son named Weroimbral. One day, the brothers, accompanied by their wives and other members of the tribe, went far into the forest in search of food. They left the children alone in the camp to await their return. Close to the camp lived a bad man named Thurikuk, who had a number of very savage dogs. So terrible were these animals that no man dared to approach them. Thurikuk hated the brothers Biyama, and was always planning to injure them. Through the trees he watched them, going to the hunt, and his thoughts were evil. Sometime later he heard the laughter of the boys at play in camp, and as he listened, a terrible thought was born in his wicked, wicked mind. He would wreak his vengeance on the brothers by killing their children, whom they loved more than life. With this intention, he loosed the dogs and sent them to the camp. When the brothers and their wives returned to the camp, they were surprised to notice that the children did not run to meet them as they usually did, and that no sound could be heard. The elder brother said, I cannot hear the voices of the children. Surely they have not wandered into the forest alone. They will be lost. The wild dog will eat them, or they will die of thirst. But the other brother laughingly replied, Ha ha, no, we have hunted far today. When we left the camp, the breath of night was on the trees and now the sun is growing cold. They have grown weary with waiting and have fallen asleep. We will find them together like two little possums. When the brothers entered the camp, they found the two little boys lying very cold and still. They called to them, but the boys did not answer, for they were dead. And by the marks on their bodies, the brothers knew that they had been killed by Thurikuk's dogs. When the women saw their dead children, they were moved by a frantic grief that was heart-rendering to behold, and all through the night could be heard the sound of their wailing. Next day, the brothers changed themselves into giant kangaroos and decided to kill Thurikuk and his savage dogs. They hopped about in sight of Thurikuk's camp, and when the dogs scented them, they gave chase. With great bounds, the kangaroos hopped away, and the dogs followed, but one ran faster than the rest. When it was a long way from the pack, the kangaroos turned, and one of them struck the dog a heavy blow with his paw, which ripped the body from head to tail. They then carried the body and threw it in a deep water hole. The kangaroos continued to hop away, and the dogs followed fast. Red foam flecked their mouths and lolling tongues. The cruel white fangs glistened in the sun, their lean sides panted, and the noise of their deep oars barking echoed through the bush like distant thunder. One dog again ran faster than the rest in this relentless chase. The kangaroos ran slower, although they were growing tired, and when the leading dog came within striking distance, they suddenly turned and with one swift stroke ripped it from end to end. This terrible hunt continued until one by one, the dogs were killed. The kangaroos again changed themselves into man and went to Thurikuk's camp to kill him. When he saw them approaching, he seized his weapons and prepared to fight. They, however, made the sign of peace by placing their spears in the ground, and he did likewise. The elder brother then spoke to him, saying, While we were hunting, you crawled like an adder in the grass and killed our children with your dogs. We have killed your dogs, and the crows are whitening their bones. I am now going to kill you, not as you killed children, but as men kill men. And when you are dead, I will change you into a bird that will live forever in the darkness of night and never see the sun. Thurikuk did not answer. He knew that he would have to fight for his life. Picking up his spears and a wooden shield, 
who followed Biyama to a clear space in the bush where the trial of skill was to take place. The two men stood facing each other some distance apart. Each held a long spear poised for throwing in one hand, while in the other was held a wooden shield which partly covered his body. At a given signal from the younger brother, the fight commenced. The spears flew through the air like beams of light, and their long shafts quivered as they missed their mark and buried deep in the trees. Both the men were very skilled spear throwers, and the fight was a long one. No sound was heard except the hissing of the spears in flight, the heavy breathing of the men who were tired through their great exertions, and the dull thud of their feet on the grass as they leapt forward. In a desperate effort to end the fight, Biyama threw a spear at his enemy's throat with all his strength. Thurikuk saw it coming and instantly raised his shield to guard himself. The spear was hurled with such force, however, that it pierced the wooden shield, entered Thurikuk's throat, and came out on the other side. At the death of their enemy, the brothers rejoiced, and, before leaving for their camp, they turned his body into a mopoke, a dismal night bird with a very harsh cry. When they returned to their camp, the brothers found that the mothers of the dead boys would not cease crying, and they were so moved with pity at the women's grief that they turned them into curlews. When you hear the mournful cry of the curlews in the bush, you will know it is the mothers crying for their little boys they lost so long ago. One day, the brothers were out hunting. The younger brother had climbed a tree and was cutting out a white wood grub when a chip from his axe went whizzing through the air and fell near the elder brother, who was standing at the foot of the tree. When Biyama descended the tree, his brother suggested that they should go hunting in different directions for the remainder of the day. Biyama agreed to the proposal and went his way. The elder brother was then left alone. He carefully cut a thin piece of wood like the chip and tied a piece of bark string to one end of it and when he swung it through the air, it made the same sound as the flying chip. He continued his hunting, and when he returned to the camp, at the close of the day, he showed the piece of wood to his brother and said, The voices of our children dwell in the trees, and though we cannot see them, they will be with us forever. The younger brother feared that he had lost his reason and said to him, You have traveled far today, and the fires of the sun burned brightly. You must be very tired. Sleep, my brother, and when the new day dawns, you will feel better, and then we will talk. Seeing he could not convince his younger brother, Biyama went into the open and swung the piece of wood, and the low, soft sound that rose and fell was the voice of the little children. The two brothers, who were headmen of their tribes, then decided that this piece of wood, which is called the bullroarer, should be shown to all boys born in the future, in remembrance of the little boys who were killed by the dogs. And even to the present day, the Kurilus cry mournfully in the woods, and the Mopoke only ventures abroad at night. <laughs> is a small Australasian owl which has a characteristic double hoot reminiscent of the call of the European cuckoo. And the curlew, also called the bushstone curlew or the bush thick knee, is a large ground-dwelling bird endemic to Australia.
This story is called Why the Whale Spouts, the Starfish is Ragged, and the Native Bear Has Strong Arms. Many years ago, when this old world was young, all the animals now living in Australia were men. At that time, they lived in a distant land across the ocean, and having heard of the wonderful hunting grounds in Australia, they determined to leave their country and sail to the sunny land in a canoe. They knew that the voyage would be a long and dangerous one. Storms would sweep across the sea and lash the waves into a white fury. The wind would howl like the evil spirits of the forest. The lightning flashed across the sky. Like writhing golden snakes. And the death would hide in waiting for them beneath the brown sea kelp. It was therefore necessary for them to have a very strong canoe for the journey. The whale, who was the biggest of all the men, had a great strong canoe that could weather the wildest storm. But he was a very selfish fellow, and would not allow anybody the use of it. As it was necessary to have the canoe, his companions watched for a suitable opportunity to steal it and start on their long and lonely journey. But the whale was a cunning creature. He always kept very strict guard over the canoe, and would not leave it alone for a moment. The other people were at their wit's end to solve the problem of stealing the canoe. And, as a last resource, they held a great council to consider the question. Many suggestions were put forward, but none was practical. It seemed an impossible task, until the starfish came forward to place his suggestion before the council. Now the starfish was a very intimate friend of the whale, so when he spoke, everybody was silent and attentive. He hesitated for a moment and then said, Unless we get a very big canoe, it will be impossible to sail to the new hunting grounds, where the fire of the sun never dies, the sea sand is soft and golden, and there is plenty of food. I shall get my friend, the whale, to leave his canoe, and I shall keep him interested for a long time. When I give you the signal, steal silently away with it as fast as you can. The other men were so excited at the proposal that they all spoke at once and asked, How will you do it? But the starfish looked very wise and said, Your business is to steal the canoe, and mine to keep the whale occupied while you do it. Some days later, the starfish paid a friendly visit to the whale, and, after talking for some time, he said, I have noticed what a great number of vermin you have in your hair. They must be very uncomfortable. Let me catch them for you. The whale, being greatly troubled with vermin in his head, readily agreed to the kind offer of his friend, the starfish. The whale moored his canoe in deep water and sat on a rock. Starfish placed his friend's head in his lap and proceeded to hunt diligently for the vermin. While he was doing so, he told many funny stories and occupied the attention of the whale. The starfish then gave the signal to the men who were waiting and they seized the canoe and sailed off. But the whale was very suspicious. For a short time, he would forget his canoe, but then he would suddenly remember it and say, Is my canoe all right? The starfish had cunningly provided himself with a piece of bark, and, tapping it on the rock in imitation of the boat bumping with the rise and fall of the sea, he would answer, Yes, this is it I am tapping with my hand. It is a very fine canoe. He continued to tell funny stories to the whale. At the same time, he scratched very hard around his ears in order to silence the sound of the oars splashing in the water as the other men rowed away with the canoe. After some time, the whale grew tired of his friend's attention and storytelling and decided to have a look at the canoe himself. When he looked around and found the canoe missing, he could hardly believe it. He rubbed his eyes and looked again. 
Away in the distance, he could see the vanishing shape of his canoe. Then the truth dawned upon him. He had been tricked. The whale was very angry and beat the starfish unmercifully. Throwing him upon the rocks, he made great ragged cuts in the faithless creature. The starfish was so exhausted that he rolled off the rocks and hid himself in the soft sand. It is on account of this cruel beating that, even to the present day, the starfish has a very ragged and torn appearance and always hides himself in the sand. After beating the friend who had betrayed him, the whale jumped into the water and chased the men in the canoe. Great white waves rose and fell as he churned his way through the water. And out of a wound in his head which the starfish had made, he spouted water high into the air. The whale continued his relentless chase, and when the men in the canoe saw him, they said, He is gaining on us, and when he catches us, we, we shall all be drowned. But the native bear, who was in charge of the oars, said, There is no need to be afraid. Look at my arms, they are strong, strong enough to row the canoe out of danger. This reassured his companions, and the chase continued. The voyage lasted many days and nights. During the day, the hot sun beat down on the men in the canoe, and at night... The cold winds chilled them, but there was no escape. They must go on. By day and night, they could see the whale spouting in his fury and churning the sea into foam with the lashing of his tail. At last, land was sighted, and the men rowed very fast towards it. When they landed from the canoe, they were very weary and sat down on the sand to rest. But the native companion, who was always a very lively fellow and fond of dancing, danced upon the bottom of the canoe until he made a hole in it. He then pushed it a short distance from the shore, where it settled down in the water and became the small island island that is now at the entrance of Lake Illawarra. When the whale arrived at the landing place, he saw the men on the shore and his canoe wrecked. He traveled along the coast and spouted water with anger as he thought of the trick that had been played on him and of the wreck of his beloved canoe. Even to the present day whale spouts, the starfish is ragged and torn, the native bear has very strong forepaws, and the blackfellow still roams across the wild wastes of Australia. This story is called Rolamano and the Evening Star. Rolamano was the old man of the sea, the blue ocean, with all its wonderful treasures of glistening pearls, white foam, and pink coral, belonged to him. In the depths of the sea, he ruled a kingdom of shadows and strange forms to which the light of the sun descended in green and gray beams. The forests of this weird land were many trees of brown sea kelp whose long arms waved slowly to and fro with the ebb and flow of the water. Here and there were patches of sea grass, fine and soft as a snow maiden's hair. In the shadow of the trees lurked a thousand terrors of the deep. In a dark rocky cave, a giant octopus spread its long, writhing tentacles in search of its prey and gazed the while through the water with large, lustreless eyes. In and out of the kelp, a gray shark swam swiftly and without apparent motion, while bright-colored fish darted out of the path of danger. Across the rippled sand, a great crab ambled awkwardly to its hiding place behind a white-fluted clamshell, and over all waved the long, brown arms of the sea kelp forest. Such was the kingdom of Rolamano, the old man of the sea. One day, Rolamano went to fish in a lonely mangrove swamp close to the seashore. He caught many fish and cooked them at a fire. While eating his meal, he noticed 
noticed two women approach him. Their beautiful bodies were as lithe and graceful as the wattle tree, and in their eyes was the soft light of the dusk. When they spoke, their voices were as sweet and low as the sighing of the night breeze through the reeds in the river. Rolamano determined to capture them. With this intention, he hid in the branches of the mangrove tree, and when the women were close to him, he threw his net over them. One, however, escaped by diving into the water. He was so enraged at her escape that he jumped in after her with a burning fire stick in his hand. As soon as the fire stick touched the water, the sparks hissed and scattered to the sky, where they remain as golden stars to this day. Rolamano did not capture the woman who dived into the dark waters of the swamp. After a fruitless search, he returned to the shore and took the other woman to live with him forever in the sky. She is the evening star. From her resting place, she gazes through the mists of eternity at the restless sea, the dark, mysterious kingdom of Rolamano. On a clear summer night, when the sky is studded with golden stars, you will remember that they are the sparks from the fire stick of Rolamano. And the beautiful evening star is the woman he captured in the trees of the mangrove swamp. Australian Aboriginal myths, also known as dreamtime stories, songlines, or Aboriginal oral literature, are the stories traditionally performed by Aboriginal peoples within each of the language groups across Australia. All such myths variously tell significant truths within each Aboriginal group's local landscape. They effectively layer the whole of the Australian continent's topography with cultural nuance and deeper meaning, and empower selected audiences with the accumulated wisdom the knowledge of Australian Aboriginal ancestors. There are 400 distinct Aboriginal groups across Australia, each distinguished by unique names, usually identifying particular languages, dialects, or distinctive speech mannerisms. With so many distinct Aboriginal groups, languages, beliefs, and practices, scholars cannot attempt to characterize under a single heading the full range and diversity of all myths being variously and continuously told, developed, elaborated, performed, and experienced by group members across the entire continent. The Encyclopedia of Aboriginal Australia nevertheless observes one intriguing feature of Aboriginal Australian mythology is a mixture of diversity and similarity in myths across the entire continent. This story is called Earth Dying, Earth Reborn. Once, the earth was completely dark and silent. Nothing moved on its barren surface. Inside a deep cave below the Nullarbor Plain slept a beautiful woman, the sun. The Great Father Spirit gently woke her and told her to emerge from, from her cave and stir the universe into life. The Sun Mother opened her eyes and darkness disappeared as her rays spread over the land. She took a breath and the atmosphere changed. The air gently vibrated as a small breeze blew. The Sun Mother then went on a long journey. From north to south and from east to west, she crossed the barren land. The earth held the seed potencies of all things, and wherever the sun's gentle rays touched the earth, there, grasses, shrubs, and trees grew until the land was covered in vegetation. In each of the deep caverns in the earth, the sun found living creatures which, like herself, had been slumbering for untold ages. She stirred the insects into life in all their forms and told them to spread through the grasses and trees. Then she woke the snakes, lizards, and other reptiles, and they slithered out of their deep hole. As the snakes moved through and along the earth, they formed rivers, and they themselves became creators, like the sun. Behind the snakes, mighty rivers flowed, teeming with all kinds of fish and water life. Then she called for the animals, the marsupials, and the many other creatures to awake and make their homes on the earth. The sun mother then told all the creatures that the days would from time to time change from wet to dry and from hot to cold. 
and so she made the seasons. One day, while all the animals, insects, and other creatures were watching, the sun traveled far into the sky, to the west, and, as the sky shone red, she sank from view, and darkness spread across the land once more. The creatures were alarmed. They huddled together in fear. But, sometime later, the sky began to glow on the horizon to the east, and the sun rose smiling into the sky again. The sun mother thus provided a period of rest for all her creatures by making this journey each day. Thanks for listening. Here's a story is written, recorded, and edited by me, Bryce Taylor. Tune in next time to hear about the great garbage patches of our oceans. I'm Bryce Taylor, and this has been Here's a Story. Here's a Story. Here's a Story. Here's a Story.